Hi, and welcome to the College Financial Lady podcast. I'm Ann Garcia, a fee-only financial planner and author of the College Financial Lady blog. My guest today is Terry Madygrove. Terry's a certified educational planner with Chartered University Consultants. Her certification is granted by the American Institute of Certified Educational Planners to consultants who meet stringent application requirements, including a master's degree, specialized training, significant professional experience, involvement in professional organizations, and the passing of a board-certified exam requiring both institutional and professional knowledge. In addition to her role as an education planner, Terry has served as an interviewer for Cornell University for over 10 years. Not only that, but she's a mom to two adult children, so she's navigated the college admissions landscape both personally and professionally. Terry, welcome. Thanks so much, Anne. There's so much I could learn from Terry, but today we want to focus on college applications. So applying to college is a gigantic topic, from choosing schools to writing essays to completing the FAFSA and so much more. How would you break that process down into a few key steps or a timeline for students and their families? So you're absolutely right, Anne. It is a very gigantic topic. And uh, students come to me at various points in the application process. I had one family call me when their child was eight years old. It was a little bit crazy, and their, <laughs> just to say the least. And their sole goal was admission to Harvard. So needless to say, I told that family that it was too early to be thinking about college and never a good idea to focus on one school. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, another family called me in late November of their son's senior year. And he had already applied to a few colleges, and he soon realized that he really kind of had no idea what he was doing. So we had a lot of quick work to, to accomplish. But another one of my students came to me in the beginning of their senior year and was very interested in including UK universities on the list, especially Oxford. So Oxford has a much earlier due date for its applications than other UK universities. So we had to back into a timeline to make sure that she was done with that application with a comfortable margin before the October 15th deadline. So essentially the overall answer is that I create a timeline for families depending upon what stage the family is in when they call me and what their goals are. Most families call me in their child's sophomore year or early in their junior year. And first and foremost, I endeavor to get to know the student well and build a rapport. Really without that rapport, a timeline is kind of meaningless since even determining what steps are key is going to be based upon the students and the family's goals. So with that big picture in mind, I can then create a realistic timeline to comfortably reach application deadlines. So of course we talk about early action and early decision and restrictive early action and rolling decision and regular decision, but you know, that's a long, that's a topic that can be part of a, an entire discussion in and of <laughs> itself. Um, but one point that I, I do stress with families is that meetings are much less frequent in the younger grades, frequent as senior year approaches. Like, I really firmly believe that although families should be preparing for college while their child is in high school, high school should be about high school and the entire focus during high school should not be solely on college. So my daughter found the application process extremely time consuming. She only applied to about eight schools total, but between admissions and scholarships, she had to write about 25 essays and then 
Of course, some schools only took the common app. Some schools only took the coalition app. One school had its own proprietary application. Can you break down kind of the key components of an application? I'm thinking, you know, GPA and test scores, essays, letters of recommendation, all that good stuff, and any strategies for managing them? Yes, absolutely. So you're you're right. It is an extremely time-consuming process. And way more time consuming than families may realize. I know that a lot of families have heard about the common app and they've heard about the personal statement, but many don't realize that there are um, a lot of supplemental essays also included. So in my opinion, your daughter's experience points out why the term common app nomer. Even when students only use the common app, there's very little that's really common about it. As I said, there's a main essay, but many colleges will require one, two, three, even more supplemental essays of varying lengths from 200 words to 600 words to three words. So um, it, there is a lot involved, but fortunately, there's overlap in some of those supplemental essays. So by looking at the essay prompts in advance before writing, we can kind of brainstorm ways to not reinvent the wheel for each essay because there is often overlap. And the key components are, as you mentioned, so GPA, standardized test scores, essays, letters of recommendation, but in addition, extracurricular activities. They're really key for U.S. colleges. And, you know, outside of the U.S., they're not viewed as nearly as important. But inside the U.S., they are very important. And this is often a surprise to the international students that I work with. You know, they're very geared towards their grades and their test scores. But it's the extracurricular activities that kind of add flavor to the uh, student's application. And colleges are looking for those. Um, so, but even within these key components, there are lots of nuances. Like, for example... Many families will focus on GPA and ask, what is better? Is it an A average in standard classes or a B average in AP classes? And like everything else in college admissions, it depends. It depends. <laughs> right. It depends. It depends. And, um, you know, you can tell that I'm a lawyer by background because that was what I said all the time when anyone asked me a question. Well, it depends. And it does in college admissions, too. Um, and it specifically depends on what the rest of the application is going to look at and the selectivity of colleges that, student, that the student will be applying to. So some colleges would be absolutely thrilled to see a student pushing him or herself in an AP class. Others are not only going to expect the AP class, but they're going to expect the A too. So each college is going to evaluate a student's transcript within the context of a student's high school and what is offered in that high school. Well, I know my kids had two opposite experiences with IB classes. It's our high school is an IB school. You know, my daughter, for the schools that she applied to, that was pretty much the price of admission was full IB course load. And so she did that and, and loved it. And my son, you know, we always encouraged him to challenge himself in high school. And in retrospect, Financially speaking, that was a mistake because the college that he ultimately went to bases their scholarships on unweighted GPAs, and he was not getting the same grades in his IB classes 
as he would have in, in regular classes. And it cost him $12,000 a year in merit scholarships. Yeah, that, that really is a shame that that happened. And it, it's, um, it's, it's really unfortunate that sometimes colleges will base so much on a GPA and not as much on the rigor of the classes. So um, for admissions purposes, most times colleges will look at rigor and they will look at, by rigor, I mean the, the IB classes or the AP classes taken, and they'll look at the GPA. But often when they're looking at um, scholarships, they have sort of more, I guess, standardized cutoffs, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And that seems like that's exactly what happened with your son. So it's sort of to prevent that type of thing from happening, um, it, the best way to do it is to start the college discussion early and sort of understand what the goals are and then try to back into whether what the strategy is in choosing classes in high school. You know, and going back to those components, some of the components require a lot of long-range planning, and it's, it's particular extracurriculars to make sure that there's consistency and commitment, and especially now may involve quite a bit of out-of-the-box thinking. So my strategy for managing these components always goes back to the timeline that we discussed before. You know, we can't discuss summer plans in July. There has to be planning in advance. So I, I use specialized software to keep track of everything all in one place. And we set milestones far in advance so it's clear that we both know exactly when certain tasks should be completed. For example, for most students, not all, but most, I suggest that they take a diagnostic ACT or SAT test in the summer prior to their junior year. And then we kind of know you know, is one test going to be better than the other? Or maybe that student should be applying test optional. So, you know, knowing these sorts of things in advance, we can kind of um, set out a timeline of what's going to work for that student. I would say with just about every student, I set a goal of completing the main Common App essay in the summer before a student's senior year. So when the student returns to school, there's this huge weight that's been lifted. And we can, we can work on supplements over the summer, too, and as many as possible, at least. Um, but before fingers are put to a keyboard or we brainstorm essays, um, we, we basically talk about really what the student's goals are. So we know in writing those essays what's important to the student. I can tell you that many students have called me during their senior year and they say, you won't believe it, but my friends haven't even started their essays yet. I'm like, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you point out, you know, the common app is a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because it makes it so easy to apply to lots of schools and then you get a ways down that path and you're like, oh, there's a lot of work here. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, and because it is easy in a sense, um, you know, you just, it's all online. So you're not literally typing out every application or, or back in the old days, writing out by hand, every application. Um, this is one of the reasons why there are so many more applications being submitted to schools, because in a sense, it's easy, um, in that, but it's also difficult in that there are all of these supplements. 
Yeah. Well, I know like for my daughter, one of the things she did, most of the schools have a, you know, why do you want to go here as, as your supplemental essay? And she's, when she started looking at it, she's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to like go and do all this stuff. And finally she realized that she could create a single essay that was about her and adapt it to each school. So, so she wrote about, um, you know, her two big interests in high school were theater and, um, computer science and programming. And, you know, now in college, she's a double major of classics and computer science. But so her essay that she wrote for why do I want to go to, to your school was always, you know, I, I've, I've always had these, you know, left brain, right brain leanings and I, and, and, and I've never wanted to choose and, um, and, and when I discovered, you know, insert thing from your school here mm-hmm. um, at, at your school, I realized that going there meant I didn't have to choose, but that I could continue to pursue, to pursue both. So that definitely made the process a little bit more manageable because then she would just, you know, talk about one thing she had observed on their, either when we visited their campus or something that she'd learned about something so she could tie in something specific about the school to her own personal story, but it wasn't you know, eight separate, <laughs> why do I want to go here essays? Well, your, your daughter sounds like sort of my ideal client because she actually really figured it out. She, she knew that the why us essay isn't sort of just regurgitating what someone can find on their website about the size of the school or the location of the school or the beautiful campus. It was about her. And that's what's so important because that's exactly what colleges want to know, whether it's the personal statement of the Common App, the Why Us essay, or other supplemental essays. In a sense, all the colleges are really asking for is something that really reflects who the student is and why the student would be a good fit for that school. Yeah. Well, I know I was listening, um, the Dean of Admissions for UChicago, which is where my daughter goes, he did a little presentation about, about their essays and kind of why, why they have these essays. And UChicago is known for their wacky, um, you know, ad- admissions essays, like where's Waldo or. Yes. Yeah. And, and so he said, you know, the statement of purpose is, is for them to learn about this student as a person. The YU Chicago is for them to learn about whether that student is a fit for you, Chicago. And then the wacky essay is to learn about how the student engages with a topic. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's really absolutely right. Um, it sounds like your daughter is perfect fit for you, Chicago, given the way she thinks. They are yeah. the <laughs> out of the box, deep thinkers for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and honestly, we found when she did, you know, when she was doing her essays um, and I don't know if this is if this is coincidence or, or not, but um, the schools that she wrote the essays early were the ones she got accepted to. And the two schools she didn't accept, get accepted to were the last two that she wrote essays for. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, I, I would imagine there's a, a degree of essay burnout um, that Absolutely. happened. But also, I think she naturally gravitated towards the essays of the schools that were the better fit for her. Absolutely. And, 
put the others yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I see this often. Um, you know, I think it is those two components. So there, there's absolutely burnout. If you think about all of these essays, you know, anyone, a child or an adult, is going to burn out after a while on writing that many essays in this short period of time. And because students typically do start the applications for the schools that they're more interested in, it's kind of natural to think that those last couple might not be this, the schools that they're quite as excited about. So I, I think that, that that's a, a common occurrence. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised by that, but it sounds like your daughter did great in college admissions and ended up exactly where she should be. Yeah, she, she did. And, um, in hindsight, it was all, it was all great. <laughs> but it yes. was definitely a, a lot of work when we were, when we were in the middle of it. Yeah. It's a little like childbirth. You just like sort of forget. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or That's a to. perfect analogy. <laughs> so you had mentioned early decision and early action. Um, first off, can you explain what they are? And second, why might a student choose to apply ED or EA or why not? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, more and more colleges are developing early action and early decision plans. Some have early action, some have early decision, some have neither, some have both, some have two early action plans and two early decision plans. It's, it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, but essentially, early action and early decision are exactly the same in one respect. And that's that they are early applications and early um, either acceptances or denials or wait or deferrals. So students apply typically in November under either early action or early decision, and they'll hear early, typically in December or January. But the, the main difference between the two is that Students can, with some exceptions, apply to multiple schools early action, but they can only apply to one school early decision. And the reason for that is if a student is accepted under an early action plan, they, even though they heard early, they have typically until May to decide whether they want to attend that school. There's no commitment on the student's part. But if a student applies early decision and is accepted early decision, that student is committing to go to that school. And that's why the student can only apply to one early decision school. Um, so the, the plans can benefit a student um, since they apply early and they hear early, but they can also backfire. So the reason that many students think that they should apply early decision to a school is because there is usually a statistical advantage to applying early decision. So that statistical advantage entices many students to apply early. Um, they think, well, you know, if their school has a 15% overall acceptance rate, but it has a 30% early decision acceptance rate, then I'm more likely to get in. That, that's logical, except for the fact that the academic profile of the student applying early and the student applying regular is exactly the same. So it's, they, there is some advantage to, because schools are going to want to admit students that they know are going to attend 
So for that reason, there's some advantage. But if the student is not the right academic fit, they're still not going to be admitted early decision. And I had an unfortunate situation where, against my better judgment, a student applied to Tufts early decision one. The student was not in the academic mix for Tufts and was denied. And then... (laughs) for some reason, decided to apply early decision two to a school of even higher selectivity and was denied. And this was really a double psychological blow for that student. Oh, yeah. It was horrible. And he ended up being admitted to the rest of the schools that he applied to and was ended up at a school that was a perfect fit for him and is now thriving there. But he tortured himself by doing that. So the rule of thumb is essentially, yes, there's a statistical advantage to applying early decision, but only if the student is a good fit to begin with. Um, You know, a lot of students want to hear from a school an acceptance, of course, prior to their winter break. And I completely understand that. And I'm on board with that. But they have to be applying to the right schools, regardless of the application plan, regardless of whether it's early decision, early action, or regular decision. Yeah, my son did early action to both of the, he only applied to two schools, and he did early action to to both, just because he had everything ready. And he's like, why wouldn't I? (laughs) Right. Well, well, that's another really good point. I mean, sometimes students just aren't ready. And, um, you know, I, I... if they're not, then there's no reason to. But um, yeah, if he's ready and he knew those were the schools that were of interest to him, uh, that's great that he applied early because then he he heard decisions early. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing about the decisions is one school responded within 48 hours and oh. the other one didn't respond until December 15th. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. oh my so well, so the 48 hours is unusual you know, yeah that, that really is usually you know, most schools um they have reg- almost regardless of whether you apply in early september or november 1st potentially the deadline you still usually don't hear until um december so yeah it was and i mean it was crazy because the school that accepted him they just started this marketing campaign to get him to enroll and so he was getting you know something in the mail mm-hmm. every 3 weeks and twice a week he'd get emails from the yeah well it, it, <laughs> check out our dorms this one has a pool as soon oh as you my. accept you get your housing preference number yes oh it's and the other one was crickets uh, right and then You know, and that's so interesting because if there's something that I have definitely learned over these years, it's that college is without a doubt a business. I mean, they're institutes of higher learning for sure, but in this stage, in the application stage, is a business. And so all those enticements that your son was receiving um, are common these days. And... um, one of the main reasons is that students at colleges want to protect their yield. They only want to uh, admit students who they honestly think are going to attend. So even if students identical on paper, if one of them has been in touch with that college and has a rapport with the college and that college thinks that that student is more likely to attend that student may be admitted versus the other student who is 
equally academically qualified. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a point that so many families overlook, you know, we're used to sort of the Willy Wonka narrative that's driven by the Ivy leagues and Stanford Mm -hmm. and places like that, where, you know, you might get a golden ticket and you might get to get in, but the vast majority of colleges are actively trying to enroll students. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a very good point. They really are. And, you know, the media tends to focus on, 10 schools in the country that have admissions rates, you know, in the single digits now. Um, But there are, you know, over 3000 colleges in the U S and most of those colleges are actively seeking students. Yeah. Um, So, um, you know, we've talked a bit about the parts of the application, but, and, and, you know, we so often think of a successful application as the one that gets the student accepted. And of course, you know, going to college is, is the point of applying. But I think there's a, a piece that a lot of families overlook in the process. And that's a, in some ways, applications are to college what a wedding is to marriage. It's a big step, but it's not necessarily the thing that's going to make the whole enterprise successful. And of course, as, you know, as time consuming and costly as applications are, applying to schools that you won't ultimately attend is a huge waste of time and money. Can you talk a little bit about finding the right college fit, especially now when visiting options are, are, are pretty limited? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, or even when they're not limited, they're not showing the full picture. <laughs> yes, so true. So you are really preaching to the choir here. I, I talk with my families endlessly about finding fit college. Um, from the admis- initial meeting, that is my mantra. And I, I always tell students if not to apply to a college unless they would like to attend. So as an example, one student told me she was just wanted to throw in an application to Cornell because just maybe she would get in. And I love Cornell. It's my alma mater. But it would have been a terrible choice for this student who wanted a small And she had no intention of attending if admitted. So that's just not a good strategy. It's a waste of time, energy, and money. Uh, you know, applications cost somewhere between sixty and hundred dollars each. So just throwing something into the ring when the student has no intention of attending, if admitted is literally just throwing money away. So, well, and then you add to that, you know, sending your test scores, sending a CSS profile. If it's a profile school, you know, that's another $40 right there. (laughs) Yes. Everything adds up. I mean, it's, it's, it's thousands of dollars to just apply. So yes, it's not a good strategy unless it's the right fit. So, and fit, fit really is the key. And I talk to students all the time about components of fit, which essentially are academics the social fit and financial factors, you know, your area of expertise. Um, I I suggest that students delve really deeply into college websites and look at courses that they're interested in and requirements for those courses. For instance, a student can be a computer science major in an arts and sciences college, or they can be a computer science major in an engineering college. The computer science major is going to differ depend on the type of college. So that's just an example of how to sort of take a deep dive into the, the majors that are, you know, I've, 
I've visited hundreds of campuses and I avail myself of every possible opportunity through professional organizations that I'm a member of, such as IECA and HECA and local college counselor groups to speak with admissions officers. So I'm in constant contact with admissions officers, which enables me to have a pulse on the climate at many schools. And I can give students sort of firsthand advice on fit. Um, I'd say that one silver lining of COVID is that schools have become experts, not only on giving virtual tours, and every college has a virtual tour on its website now, but also in offering many other more unique opportunities for students in addition to webinars. So as an example, Syracuse University has one session classes for high school students. And these classes give students a great idea of what it would be like to be in a classroom at the university. Uh, a student of mine who's really interested in astrophysics took a class at Syracuse. And now it's sort of jumped to the top of his list. He was so interested in these um, in the subject matter of that class. Boston College offers online information sessions like, but it includes a student panel and students can um, speak with these college students and really get a feel for what the school is like. And a recent example is I had a student interested in music who contacted College of Charleston to get a better idea of their jazz program. Um, this student is actually a student in China, so he hasn't had as much opportunity to kind of visit. So it's even more difficult for him than some of the American students I work with. But he contacted a professor who replied to his email immediately and was willing to speak to the student about the jazz program at the college and the city and, and job opportunities afterward. One other, I thought, really fun example of of fit and having to figure out how to um, determine fit was this one student who was really interested in pre-health programs. And for a variety of reasons, she wanted to be in Florida and only in Florida. <laughs> and she, um, probably well, you're in the Northeast. <laughs> I can imagine why someone would be interested. In Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, she was actually from Kansas. But she, um, her grandmother lived in Florida and she wanted to be close. So she looked at Florida schools that we talked about. She was interested in a small school and she developed a rapport with Florida Southern College, a nice small school in Florida. And she developed such a rapport and learned so much about the pre-health programs that she applied early decision in the summer and was actually admitted in August prior to the student's senior year. She wow. went into her, it was amazing. She went into <laughs> So she got senior, to just enjoy senior year. <laughs> she did. She did. And she also only had, her senior year was online, and she only had a couple of classes that she needed to complete her high school requirements. So she ended up graduating a semester early and, uh, you know, it couldn't have worked out better. But I find that admissions officers typically are really happy to develop a rapport with a student. And they point the student in the direction to gather more information if, if admissions is not the, the, the end point, as like, for instance, with that jazz student. So the bottom line is that there's really tremendous information available on college websites and college fairs, virtual or not. And networking with 
parents and professors can give a student a really great idea of fit. Um, and one, one last point that I'd like to make about fit is that, you know, remember, we're talking about high school students. They're, they're young and fit changes. I have had many students to me saying that they want to go to a large school with a real sort of rah-rah spirit. And then when I talk to the student, you know, about what they're really interested in, they might be interested in a small community and close relationships with students and professors. And in the end, they might be better suited for a small rural school. So I always tell my students to keep an open mind because you, you don't know what you don't know. And, it, yeah. it's a, and I think it's, that's a great point. I mean, we're drawn to schools or even just aware of schools based on their reputation. But what makes your college experience is the relationships that you that you forge over those four years, you know, with your peers, with the faculty, you know, with so just engaging on the campus. And yeah, so true. And, um, you know, reputation varies uh, from parts of the country to other parts of the country. Yeah, I have this whole network of colleagues around the U.S. And, and even abroad. And when I talk about sort of the top five popular schools from the New York metropolitan area, they're always surprised because the top five in their area is often completely different. So the hot school is not the hot on Long Island is not the hot school in, um, in California. And so reputations vary from, from area to area. And this is something that I tell to my students all the time. You know, if you're, you're going to be going to college, it's you. It's not your friend. It's not your parent. It's you. And so the reputation alone is not key. It's, it's exactly what you said. It's who you meet, what relationships you develop. And, you know, based upon those relationships, you can really thrive at a university or, or really dislike it. There are some universities who, um, you know, have a competitive atmosphere. And some students thrive in that and some students drown in that. So it's not reputation alone that matters. I mean, that I'm not saying that's not a factor, but that shouldn't be the main factor that students focus on. You know, one, one thing that I've really noticed is that, um, again, how reputation of, of colleges vary from parts of the country. So, but some students that I find that are on the East Coast, they either want to be on the East Coast or the West Coast, and they forget that we're, we have a very big country in between. <laughs> and it's often those schools in between that are looking for students from the East Coast or the West Coast. And as they're looking for students from the East Coast or the West Coast, they will often entice those students with exceptional merit scholarships. And so that, that's another factor that students should really be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I find, you know, we're in, in Oregon, we're in a smaller state. And so I know of lots of students who've chosen a, a small out-of-state liberal arts school Mm -hmm. And that school wanted students from all 50 states, and they were the only applicant exactly. from Oregon. So they were going to make darn sure that student didn't say no to them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I don't know what it is about South Dakota, but I can tell you on every campus when admissions people 
talk about that they have students from all 50 states. They say, or maybe 49, we're still looking for that student from South Dakota. So I'm not sure why, <laughs> but I do, I do encounter that. But, um, you know, from, especially from New York metropolitan area, um, you know, there are a lot of schools here and there are a lot of students here. So, you know, I, I think students should just branch out a little bit, or at least think about branching out a little bit, at least consider it. Yeah. Well, I know like my, um, my son was a fairly indifferent high school student. Didn't do, you know, didn't do great in, in his classes, didn't particularly enjoy high school. And he was always someone who wanted to, you know, go his own way. He played for a different soccer club than any of his friends. You know, he dated a girl from another high school. He was a summer camp counselor at a place where none of his friends were camp counselors. And when the time came for college, you know, he applied to University of Oregon with all of his friends. And then he applied to University of Arizona and he ended up going to Arizona and he has absolutely thrived academically there. And I think a lot of it comes from you know, forging his own path and needing to put himself out there because he didn't have this support group of, of, of friends there with him. You know, he's, he's a 4.0 student. He was invited to the honors college. He's tutoring statistics. I mean, all of these things, if I told any of his high school teachers that they would just be (laughs) be surprised. (laughs) That's such a success story. And that, that's what we want for all of our students. You know, we want them to, to branch out. We want them to expand and explore. And, you know, my own daughter, um, she's also very much out of the box. She decided to go to school in the UK. She went to University of St. Andrews, then went on to get her master's at London School of Economics, lives in London now. And this has all been wonderful to see. And she was an excellent high school student, but didn't necessarily want to go to the school that everybody else was applying to. And so um, she went to the school that was absolutely perfect for her. And that, that's what I hope for all of my students. I hope that they find the school that's really perfect for them and that they're not swayed so much by, you know, Johnny who lives down the street or, or, or where even where their parents went to school. Um, you know, each is an individual in his or her own right. And what's so incredibly rewarding for me is to see each of these students just develop and grow and become their own person. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, oftentimes people say to me, well, why would you work with a college counselor? I mean, college is so expensive already and the whole process is so expensive. Why would you throw another cost into the mix? And to me, there's really two pieces of it. One is applications are really expensive. So if you can go from 20 applications to 10, you've covered a lot of your, you know, a lot of your counselors cost already. But the biggest way that families spend way too much money on college is they don't start out at the right school. They transfer, they don't get all their credits to transfer and Mm -hmm. college becomes a five-year project, not a four-year project. And so finding your fit is just such an important piece of managing your overall college cost. Yeah, I I totally agree. And, And it's not only the cost transfer, it's sort of the psychological aspects of the transfer being unhappy for some period of time so i feeling unsuccessful yeah exactly exactly so success is measured in so many ways and that is always my goal with students 
Yeah. Well, Terry, you've been so generous with your time with us. If I could, you know, if I could pull out a few key points from our conversation, I think they would be that, you know, high school students should really be focused on their high school experience, not only because that's what's going to get them the grades and the participation Mm -hmm. that's going to look good on um, on college applications, but because it's going to give them a sense of self and it's a time that they're not going to be able to, um, go back to if, uh, if they, if they didn't, um, you know, if they missed out on something while they were there, Mm -hmm. it's never too late to start on the application process, but it might be too early. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, excuse me, early decision and early action. While there is yes, a statistical advantage to applying that way, that really only applies to students who are in the mix academically and socially to begin with. It's not going to be something that gets you into a reach school. Um, And finally, you know, finding your fit is really the key piece of it. And that's not just academics, but social and financial as well. Um, And one of the silver linings of the, of the current time is that there's just so many more tools out there to, to really get acquainted with, um, with schools and, and their, and their student bodies. Yeah, I agree that, that, that's a great summary, Anna. I, I also would just add that this can actually be a fun time in a student's life. It doesn't seem like it, but it really can be, um, because students get to figure out who they are. They really explore, they, um, you know, they're at a very formative time in their lives and, they can just grow so exponentially during this period. It's just so wonderful to see. Yeah, I know my kids and I really enjoyed that process as well. And as a parent, it's so rewarding to, you know, watch your kid look at their future and think about what their next step is going to be and try to figure out what's a fit for them and what's going to help them meet their goals and, and even what those goals are. So um, i I know I found it to be a great process and, and in particular, because when you're at the point of doing the applications, everything's still out there. Absolutely. You know, it's all still possible. No one said no to them yet. That's right. That's right. And they, they really get to see what the opportunities are and, and again, who they are. And it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Terry, thank you so much. Um, This is the College Financial Lady podcast, and I've been talking to Terry Madey-Grove of Chartered University Consultants. Terry, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Anne. Appreciate it.